And this morning, we're kicking off a series that we're calling, as you can see, Eternity, where for the next four weeks, we're going to wrestle with ideas of heaven and hell and the afterlife. Because how many of you know that there are a myriad of questions that we have about uh, ideas and topics such as these? So... Um, I hope throughout this series uh, to challenge us. I hope to provide a space for us to wrestle and to nuance things because there's a lot, a lot, a lot of gray area when it comes to the topic of heaven and hell and the afterlife. There's some concrete things that we know that we're going to discuss this morning, but there's a lot of things we don't know. Uh, and I hope that this series at large will be challenging, uh, that we'll uh, unpack this together. But at the end of the day, that it would be encouraging, that we uh, would really be built up uh, in our relationship with the Lord more as we study these things that are to come. So this morning, uh, I'm titling this message, The Great Mystery. The Great Mystery, because death is in fact a great mystery. And as we prepare this morning, let's quiet our hearts and let's be still and let's posture ourselves and come back to the Father. Not that all of us have run away in rebellion or necessarily in sin, but we can so often drift in awareness and drift in tenderness and drift in holy wonder. So let's return to our Father this morning and be still and be silent and allow him to have the first word over us this morning. Abba, we come to you this morning as the God who sets the lonely in families. As the God who has the audacity to characterize himself as the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows. The father who is known in his adoption of humanity. That when we were lost and broken and on the beaten path separated from you, you sent Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. And now we are adopted and ransomed as sons and daughters. And therefore we have access that we can walk with you. We can talk with you. We can love you and adore you and live the life that you created us for in intimate relationship with you. Let it be so this morning, we pray. And as we unpack these ideas and we begin a journey through this series this morning, we ask that you would instruct us, Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray that this would be a sweet four weeks of us wrestling and us nuancing and us looking at ideas and truths in Scripture uh, about heaven and hell and the afterlife and the life of the world to come. So would you teach us? Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself once again as the one who guides us into all truth? And we pray this morning that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Would you be glorified and honored and praised this morning through our meditations? We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Have you ever struggled putting words to something? 
just, ah, it's kind of like, ah, I've kind of felt that way with the uh, Villanova and Michigan game a couple weeks back, where Villanova just freaking steamrolled Michigan. Like, oh man, how was the game? Oh, it was sweet. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm lacking a good adjective here. Or uh, like Shake Shack up in Denver opening. You know, when you, you have a burger and some cheese fries and a shake from Shake Shack. Bro, how was it? Oh, it was. You know, you're pulling the Ryan, Ryan Howard from the office. You guys want to hear about Thailand? Yeah. It was indescribable. You know, it's just, oh, sounds great. Yeah. I felt this way with Star Wars Episode Eight. And I recognize that there are probably some haters in the house. You think J.J. Abrams' interpretation on the series is pathetic and haters going to hate. But I am a fan of this saga. And Star Wars Episode Eight. me and a couple of my buddies saw this opening night. And I found myself after talking to people who would ask us the question, how was it? We, we were kind of just speechless because we're, we're nerds at heart. And we love all about the Star Wars books and the Star Wars sagas. And I'm showing my true colors here and I don't even really care. But we were like, Star Wars Episode Eight. Oh, it was just duh. The cinematography, bro, was the man, the the uh, the acting, you know, was so so, but the action was like, oh man, have you ever struggled putting words to something? I think these topics of heaven and hell and the afterlife often uh, we can find that we can't really articulate at times the proper words to describe these events and these topics of the Christian faith. I think. Uh, largely one, because we are so, as millennials and as young adults who are go-getters and, and, and uh, swinging for the fences and seeking out our occupations and seeking out those degrees and seeking out that romantic relationship that we want, we are going for it. And so often we can have our eyes right now on the busyness and at times the uh, tumultuous chaos of our lives that we really uh, refrain from looking up and thinking about death and thinking about the life of the world to come and really what that means for us today. I think our society at large wrestles with that, so focused on the here and the now and making a name for ourselves and setting out and being our own persons and and, and establishing individuality. And we uh, either uh, unintentionally or intentionally uh, neglect to think about the future Wait a minute, death and the afterlife. Wait a minute, let's, let's, let's actively give some thought to that. Also, death and the afterlife and heaven and hell, these are all kind of ethereal topics, aren't they? They're kind of up here, and, and we're not really sure exactly what they're going to look like. And so they're, they're kind of like uh, phantom thoughts that we can have. How, how do we truly put words to that which is otherworldly? And so for a number of different reasons, we can find ourselves struggling to truly articulate or even understand for ourselves these topics of heaven and hell and the afterlife, these things that we're going to explore. And throughout this series, the goal is for us to to really understand what we can in the short amount of time that we have about these topics, while at the same time holding open-handed that which is the mystery of these topics and understanding, you know what, there's a certain uh, amount of mystery that we have to embrace when it comes to the afterlife and these ethereal 
uh, topics such as death and that which is to come. And when we enter a topic like this, I think it's crucial to distinguish and absolutely crucial, actually, um, what the Bible clearly does say and what the Bible clearly does not say or allows there to be some open interpretation for these topics. I think when uh, we're taking a little sliver of scripture and we, uh, you know, when, when it comes to the life of the world to come or eschatology at large, because this study kind of fits into the greater study of eschatology, the last days and the, the end of the age and all that. I think if we take a little sliver of one passage or, or one chapter and we build a theological system around it, we are most likely building a very poorly constructed theological framework that, that probably is not durable enough to answer the hard questions. And so um, it's important to really look at Scripture and see what it clearly teaches and what it clearly uh, does not teach or allows there to be some room for interpretation. So I want to begin this morning by looking at what the Bible clearly teaches about death and the afterlife in particular. Uh, and we're just going to clip through these. I'm going to have a lot of uh, passages of Scripture uh, as referential that we're not going to dig into all the way, but uh, if you guys are interested, you can write them down and go back and study them uh, in your personal study. But uh, the one main thing that the Bible clearly teaches about death and the afterlife is that uh, the resurrection of the dead is an event that will happen in human history. Uh, the narrative of Scripture at large really attests to this reality, but, but specifically in the New Testament, where there is a fully established um, kind of apocalyptic and afterlife framework of theology, we see time and time and time again that there will be the resurrection of the dead. That by someone dying... That person does not turn into some kind of phantom that is whisked up either somewhere up there or somewhere down there, and they're kind of just floating like Pac-Man ghosts, just chilling and like no legs and just kind of floating through this ethereal abyss kind of a thing. But instead, uh, Scripture is clear that there is a point in human history where the culmin of the ages will occur, that there will be a physical resurrection of the dead. And so therefore, we can assume and deduce that the afterlife will be somewhat physical in substance. That it's not going to be this overly ethereal thing that, that, that's kind of this uh, semi-existence, but instead it is a, a physical uh, um, living life in eternity, the resurrection of the dead. And interestingly enough, uh, Scripture, both in Daniel 12, verse 2, and John 5, 28 to 29, allude to the reality that both the godly and the ungodly will uh, participate in resurrection, that uh, humanity at large, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian and live your life under allegiance to King Jesus or don't, all will be raised and all then will go uh, to judgment and the events that will eventually uh, happen that we will study in the coming weeks. So that's one thing. The second thing that it clearly teaches is that, uh, track with me, but there's some sort of intermediate state between death and the afterlife. Um, 
And again, I'm not teaching purgatory here, okay? I don't believe in purgatory. Personally, I don't think it's biblical. Some of you may think it is. But um, when we look at Scripture, there is some sort of intermediate state that it alludes to that uh, the very fact that there is resurrection as the culmination of the ages and the very fact that uh, human beings will rise from the dead and they will take on their, their physical bodies once again, that is case in point, apart from even this, the Scriptures, that... Uh, that death is not a finality, that people, again, aren't like whisked away and living in this uh, kind of spiritual realm alone, but instead there, there's some sort of waiting that's happening. That when the dead, when our friends, when our family, those who have passed, uh, you know, go on and, and, and die, they are, in a sense, waiting for something. They're waiting for their resurrection. And whether it's a soul sleep, like some believe, that they essentially uh, are, are kind of in just this lull of sleep until the resurrection of the dead, I, I don't necessarily believe that. Or if it's like what Paul says, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord, that they're actually in the presence of God, waiting for all creation to be redeemed and waiting to take on their physical bodies again. There's some sort of intermediate state, whatever the specifics are, between the events of death and the resurrection and eventually the afterlife. Um, And, uh, you know, to this, the New Testament is layered in descriptions of death as sleep. And we can play semantics there and think that that may be a euphemism, which it may in fact be. But I think that, that, that the assumption there is important, that there is some sort of waiting. There's some sort of lack of finality when it comes to death and that the resurrection of the dead is the culmination. Uh, a third thing is that the Bible is explicitly clear that there will be the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming. Uh, you got to twist and twist and tri- twist scripture hard to make it say that there's not going to be a second coming. And even then, um, it, it's, it's ridiculous to even make that proposition because the New Testament is so layered in the apostles and the, new, and, the, and the writers and Jesus himself saying that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God who, who uh, was crucified and resurrected will come again. And that that will kind of be the line in the sand between the end of this age and the beginning of the life or eternal death of the world to come, that Christ will return again. We don't have to spend much time on that uh, because many of us, if not all of us, will, can, can kind of attest to that reality. Of course, Jesus is coming back. Uh, a fourth and final thing is that no one knows the hard when of Christ's return. You remember a couple years back, it may have been five or six years at this point, where this, this guy, and I'm spacing on his name, and even if I knew it, I probably wouldn't say it. Um, he started um, propagating this idea that he had cracked the code. That, oh, man, yeah, that promise that no one knows the time or the hour, that was for the first century people of God, and that was for the church. But us 21st century folk, we have the technology and, and the mental capacity to crack the code of the time and the hour. And so he did all of these like different tests and said, oh, you know, this passage in Revelations says this, and, and you know, um, uh, this, this passage in, in the um, prophetic books of the Old Testament say this, and then this guy on the street told me that he thought that was right. So, uh, you know, obviously Jesus is coming back on October 21st. 2007. And October 22nd, 2007, roll along, and a billboard shows up that says, well, I guess we missed it. 
No one knows the time or the hour. Okay, we got that wrong. Okay, we blew it. No one knows the time or the hour. We can, we can think that we can crack some sort of code, but we would be mistaken because Jesus was explicitly clear that that would not be the case. And so these are some of the things. Obviously, this isn't a complete list, but I think this is a helpful framework to keep in mind when we, when we give attention to what exactly and clearly Scripture teaches about death and the afterlife. But as clear as this list is, um, there is still much of this topic that is so much mystery that we must keep open-handed, that we simply have to be okay with living in the gray and saying, well, I, I think it may mean this, but I'm not really sure. I think it could look like this, but I'm not sure. And, and uh, refuse to take hard and fast stances on things that are really, really debatable when it comes to this topic uh, of death and the afterlife. Because there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is many of the writings about the uh, afterlife and the life of the world to come and the age, the end of the ages and all of that is layered with uh, poetic and apocalyptic language. For those of you who have read it, you can attest that there, there, is, there is just this poetic kind of way of describing it that is not as concrete as we would like it to be as like 21st century Greek-minded Westerners. Um, but it's, it's just, it's layered with interpretation. For example, um, pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. Apparently, Revelation wasn't written as clear enough to where we can all decide that there's going to be one post-tribulation or one pre-tribulation. But there is a myriad of different stances on it because of the poetic language that is just not really clear uh, if it's going to happen one way or the other, how exactly we should interpret it. Another example is uh, Peter in 2 Peter 3.10 says that the earth will literally be burned up the earth and the heavens will be burned up with fire. Okay, uh, what does that mean literally? He says it'll be burned up with fire, but do we take that as literal? Or do we not? Uh, do we assume that, okay, there's going to be this massive flame that engulfs the entire world and somehow the heavens, the stars, the cosmos? Or do we take that as a bit more poetic language? I see... I hope that you can see where I'm getting at, that it is just layered with poetic language that keeps us from truly discerning and interpreting something concretely. And beyond this, there's a variety of metaphors when it comes to death and the afterlife. Jesus and the apostles themselves are constantly throughout the New Testament saying that the kingdom of God and the afterlife specifically, it's like this. Uh, to what shall I compare thee? Uh, it's, it's like this. It's, Jesus says uh, in Matthew 22 that it's going to be a, like a wedding feast where we're all kind of, uh, we're, we're dining together and we're feasting together. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, in Matthew 14, 12, he says that, that the life of the world to come is like his father's house. That his father's house has many rooms, and there's a room for each and every believer. And so, okay, how do we, uh, how do we put those two together? Beyond that, Revelation uh, talks about the, the life of the world to come as the new Jerusalem, the holy city that descends out of heaven and onto the earth. This new heavens and new earth. What do we do with that? There is layers of interpretation there. And so I say all of this to say, uh, I'm well aware many of you are familiar with kind of the, uh, the, the lack of tangibility of some of these 
passages, but still, I think it's helpful to both define what we know and what we don't know so that we don't take hard and fast stances about a topic of eschatology or death in the afterlife when really the Bible doesn't take a hard stance itself. That's a really good way to become dogmatic and to become argumentative and to think that you're right in your interpretation and the other one's wrong. And that's not benefiting to unity as the body of Christ, right? Keeping the mystery open-handed. I think of... To kind of demonstrate this, I think of the ancient Indian parable that was written in the mid-first millennia B.C., where the parable kind of goes like this. Some of you may have heard this, but there's a group of blind men who come into this town and they hear that this elephant, this strange creature that's called an elephant, is being brought into their town. And they think, oh man, I have to find out what this elephant looks like. And so they kind of band together, and they they go through the streets, and they eventually find this elephant, and they all kind of start uh, posting up on different parts of the elephant and feeling the elephant to try and get a picture in their minds of what exactly it looks like. And one starts feeling the trunk, and, and, and he starts shouting out loud, this thing is like a giant snake. It, 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 it's, it's thick, and it's coarse, and it's, it's, it's just a, a, one massive snake of some sort. And the other blind guys are like, dude, shut up, because one of them is holding the ear. And he says, man, no, it, the, the thing, it's not like a snake, but instead it's some sort of fan. I'm feeling wind, and it's like whipping me in the face. It's some sort of like a fan thing. And the other blind people are like, dude, shut up. You've got it wrong. It, the, you know, one's grabbing the tail, and he says, can't you guys tell it's like a rope? Like it's coarse, and it, and, it, and it doesn't feel very good. Of course, this animal is like a rope, and, and you guys get the picture. Body part throughout the elephant, tusk, uh, trunk, tail, ear. All of the blind men thought that they um, could articulate the whole based on the little part that they were feeling. And I think that is uh, a, a profound illustration of how we ought to view these topics, that when we have um, a little sliver of a scripture, and when we have a little sliver of a truth, I think it's dangerous to blow it up and say, oh, that means this, because that's getting into some murky theological waters and probably positioning us to not have uh, as, uh, as good of relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ as possible, because inevitably, you're just going to get entrenched in a position. No, it's, it's post-tribulation. It's pre-tribulation. No, heaven's going to look like this. Streets are going to be made of gold and all that sort of thing. And so we need to keep loosely the mystery that we've been given. You guys with me this morning? Okay. And at the end of the day, it's important to point out that the New Testament writers didn't even write about the events of death and the afterlife to scratch the itch of human curiosity or even to unpack all of the details about what it would look like. That just wasn't their objective. In fact, we see a much more profound objective and profound purpose for them writing of these sticky topics of death and heaven and hell and the afterlife. And we see it articulated so well in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 to 15. And Paul here is writing to a congregation who is struggling with questions about death. Uh, Like many of us are, I think, often, sometimes, often, sometimes. 
writing or wrestling with these ideas. Wow, okay, what happens after we die, though? Like, I've, I've, I've heard people tell stories, and I've, I've heard people propose that they've gone to heaven, and they've come back, or gone to hell, and they've come back. But what exactly is it like? They're wrestling. And even more practically, they're wrestling with their loved ones who have died and trying to figure out what's happening with them Do they just cease to exist, or is there some sort of future for them? And in this context, the Apostle Paul comes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, and says this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, check this out, who have no hope. No, we're not to be like that. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to articulate in very, very general terms what the second coming of the Lord will look like. But then after unpacking these ideas and giving them this teaching, he wraps it up in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 with a very pastoral uh, note and, and, and uh, timbre to it. And it says this, therefore, what does this say? Encourage one another. Say encourage one another. Encourage one another with these words. So in other words, this thing of death and the afterlife and the second coming of Christ should be something that we connect with one another on and encourage each other in. They should be modes through which we say, hey, bro, let's talk about the second coming real quick. I know that you are struggling with life right now. I know that it feels like life has hit the fan. I know that your body is giving out and that you're struggling with sickness or that your friend or family member has cancer or that you feel like the bottom of life has fallen out. But can we just talk for a second, there is resurrection of the dead for us. That this life is not all there is. That we are pilgrims through this. And obviously there's a time and place to do that. But these are modes through which we encourage one another and build each other up in our faith. I like to say it this way. The New Testament authors did not write on death and the afterlife to answer all the church's nagging questions, but to excite hope for our future resurrection and the life of the world to come. It's about exciting hope. It's about saying, hey, there is hope in the life of the world to come. The apostles and the New Testament writers didn't sit around with the church and just stay up in the clouds and philosophize on all the things that life and death could be, but instead... They use them as mechanisms of, of encouraging and giving hope to the church and saying, look, there is the hope of the world to come. There is life after death. There is resurrection, both for those who have fallen asleep and for us who are living. We can know and we can trust that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and then what? Christ will come again. He's going to come in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is hope. 
And it's in this hope that countless martyrs throughout the centuries have chosen to be burned at the stake for the name of Jesus Christ or be crucified upside down like tradition says uh, Peter was or, or just submit themselves to, to bodily destruction uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ, believing that there is resurrection for their mortal bodies, that though they be burned at the stake and suffer a gruesome death, that there is resurrection that they will uh, be participating in one day, that death is not final. It's this hope that's given uh, anchor to the soul of countless Christians who have wrestled with these ideas, loved ones who didn't know Jesus. What do we do with that? Do we, I mean, can we assume that God intervened at the last moment? What, trying to even unpack where they're at in their own faith and what death looks like for them. It's this hope, this anchor for their soul, that there is the life of the world to come. There is resurrection that beyond the fog of life and what we're experiencing now, and though life sometimes feels like it's not working, we are pilgrims and we are sojourners and we are uh, coming to the end where we will experience the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Are you catching this? There is hope in this. And so often we can turn it into just this, this philosophizing exercise where we like to think on it in, in very up here terms, disassociated from real life, but instead the New Testament authors say, no, 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 that's not it. It's about hope that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. There is hope for us with the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And it's in this hope there, there creates a holy dissonance between us and the society in which we live. Because the society in which we live articulates death as the great unknown or, or, or darkness, uh, as something to be avoided, something that is the enemy of life. In the words of Dylan Thomas, the prolific 20th century poet, he says, uh, rage, rage against the dying of the light, right? This death is the dying of the light. It's something to be avoided. It's something that you don't think about. And even if you do, you don't spend much time on it because it's destruction and it's turmoil and it's chaos. We have no idea what lies ahead. And in the face of those voices in that society, it's the church that says, wait a minute. No, we believe that death was finally conquered and dealt with on the cross and it was taken on in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that upon his resurrection, he conquered death. And now we, he even redeemed it so that we, when we encounter death and when the event of death happens in our lives, inevitably, it's used as a mechanism through which we enter into uninhibited and unbroken relationship with our creator. Jesus redeemed death with his body and shed blood. And so we, as the church, this hope, it's this dissonance in the society in which we live that sets us up as the light of the world, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden, this dissonance of the hope of the world to come. And so regardless of if we can really quantify and put our hands on and articulate in concrete fashion the mystery of these topics or not, we know that we are anchored in this hope. And really, the, the New Testament passages are not for answering all of our questions, but they're primarily for instilling an exciting hope that there is a good future ahead of us, young adults. 
There is a beautiful resurrection to come that in the face of turmoil today and suffering and pain and hardship, there's going to be a day where, as Revelation says, the Father will wipe every single tear from our eye. That there's going to be no suffering and no mourning and no weeping. There is hope in this. The hope of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. As we prepare to wrap up, the Apostle Paul articulates uh, this language of hope uh, so beautifully in 1 Thessalonians five ten to 11 when he says this, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That's beautiful. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just in fact as you are doing. That the, the hope that we have is both for this life and the next. That we can have the hope that today, because Christ has died and Christ has risen, we can live together with Christ. We can walk with him. We can journey with him. We can talk to him. We can commune with him. There can be a satisfaction of soul and an intimacy with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this life. And in the life of the world to come, because Christ will come again, we know that there will be resurrection, and we know there will be grace, and we know there will be life, and we know that there is a kingdom of God in the life of the world to come that we will live in, where we, once again, will be in unbroken and uninhibited and unbridled relationship with God, where our sin nature doesn't throw up a wall, where the, the, you know, the, the, the fallen world in which we live isn't something that keeps us from true intimacy, but instead we lock eyes with our Father face to face. And we walk with Him, and we live for all eternity with Him. It's hope for this life and the next, that whether awake or asleep, we may live with Him. Amen? So Father, we thank You for the hope that is to come and the hope that we have today. This hope that is the anchor for our souls, this hope that informs the mystery of these topics. Lord, that though uh, we wrestle and though we question and though there are some things we very well can come to articulate and understand, even in the gray area and in the frustrating questions, the nagging things that we uh, maybe will never get solved, we know that even in that we have hope hope of intimacy with you today, hope of communion with you today, the invitation uh, to, to holy love with you today, to where even the ordinary of our lives is sacred, to where we can walk on holy ground every day of our lives in communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we know that we have hope in the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. We thank you for hope. And we love you. God, would you let this hope build us up and encourage us in each specific circumstance of our lives, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you excite and instill this hope in us that we may be people who create a holy dissonance between that which we live in and that which we look to. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We love you. We're yours. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You know, for the rest of the series, we're going we're gonna to unpack 
these ideas. Next week, we're going to talk about hell and what do we do with that? What does scripture say about that? What, what are some areas of wrestling with that? The week after that, we're going to talk about heaven. The week after that, we're going to talk about how our present conduct kind of informs all of this. But we have to lay the groundwork of this, that if the apostles and the New Testament writers were about hope when it comes to these, we have to start there uh, or else we start on the wrong foot. So, um, you know, we got baptisms coming up during second service, as we've been saying all morning. Uh, and so uh, we're going to end this time a little bit differently. We can put these questions up on the screen. I just have two questions that we can kind of nuance and unpack at our tables. Um, but we're going to do this a bit differently to where now we're kind of a Officially, I want to dismiss us. So if you guys got to get going, you can. If you guys want to stay around and linger and unpack these questions together, you can. Totally up to you. But uh, myself and the New Life Young Adult staff and some of our volunteers have to run over to the main building and get ready for baptisms. So the rest of the time is yours, you guys. Don't mind us if you stay and linger and we're tearing down banners and, and that sort of thing. But um, we'll be back next week for our second installment of Eternity. Hope this morning was helpful and hope you guys, as you stay put or leave, um, are uh, leaving in God's grace and his peace and his life and that you uh, would have hope in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come this week in every situation and every day uh, that, that is to come. So love you guys. Enjoy your week and we'll catch you guys over in second service for baptisms uh, in the front of section 10. All right. I'll stop talking. Much love. Peace out. <laughs>